This is a presentation of the Trine Broadcasting Network, part of the Center for Sports Studies at Trine University. Learn more at trine.edu. Welcome to the Center for Sports Studies podcast. My name is Brandon Podgorski, Professor of Sport Management at Trine University, and I want to welcome you to this week's podcast. On today's podcast, we have a recorded interview with Dr. David Hancock. He is an associate professor at Memorial University, and we're going to discuss on this podcast kind of the crisis that's going on in youth sport officiating, as well as looking at youth sport development. Is there a new model for kids instead of just kind of the traditional competitive model that maybe a lot of us grew up with? I hope you enjoy. Dr. Hancock, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure, and you're up at Memorial University. Tell us a little bit about Memorial, what you're doing up there, and and just some of the things that that you're researching right now. Yeah, so Memorial, we're in the very eastern part of Canada, in fact, the eastern part of North America even, uh, up here in Newfoundland. Um, It is a, what we call a medium-sized university. We've got about 18,000 students up here, and my job, it basically entails sports, uh, teaching sports psychology, doing some research in sports psychology, and I've really become passionate about researching sport officials, both in terms of performance and also how to recruit and retain them, and also looking at youth sport, things like relative age effects, things like birthplace effects, things like how to keep them involved in sport, proper youth sport structures, and really focusing on how to develop talent in youth sport. And it's one thing to be a researcher in youth sport, but tell us a little bit about your background because you were, you were also a former athlete, former hockey player up in Canada. You've coached and obviously you've done research, you've worked at universities, and so you've seen kind of a broad spectrum and you're an official yourself. So tell us a little bit about, about your background uh, before we kind of go forward. Yeah, I grew up in a, in a smaller town in the middle of Ontario and really became passionate mostly about hockey and, and baseball, but the opportunities we had in our high school, we weren't limited by the number of sports that we could play in a season. Uh, so actually the one season I played seven sports in one year in high school and really developed that passion for playing a number of different sports. That really kept me going into my education where I wanted to you know, be involved in sports in some way. It started me down the track of being a coming uh, a sport official. So I've refereed hockey now for I think 23 years. And then also got me thinking, especially once I had a child, thinking more about getting involved on the coaching side of things. I think a lot of our experiences that we have as athletes kind of might relate to the quality of coaching we had. If we had bad experiences, it might've been because of a bad coach. If we had great experiences, it might've been because of a good coach. So really trying to think about, you know, how could I contribute to the youth sport landscape by doing some coaching myself and bringing my background to that area. And so right now I know you're getting ready to start a a new research project and I know you've written papers and you've done some before in the past. Um, the reason I wanted you on this podcast is because what you're doing right now kind of caught my eye. And, and we're seeing a lot as far as youth sport officiating. And there's a lot of stories in the media right now with lack of youth sport officials and, and kind of the abuse that some of them are taking from parents and from, uh, from coaches. So tell us a little bit about what you're getting ready to do with, with this research and, and maybe kind of a, a glimpse at, at what you think you may find. Uh, with the culture, we're really seeing a decline in the number of sport officials. And a lot of people look at, you know, parents and abuse from parents and I guess coaches and athletes as well as being a major reason there. But I wanted to take a different approach and look at maybe not so much 
the, the bad experiences people have with sport officials, but let's look at some of the good experiences they have. Uh, and this came about when I was working with one of my colleagues, he was talking about how he was a hockey goalie as a kid. And he remembered one game where he was just getting peppered in the net. He had lots of goals against. And the referee came up to him at one point and said, hey, keep your head up. Your team's not playing well in front of you. This isn't your fault. And that really stuck with him that the referee would go out of his way to talk like that. And so I want to take a different approach. And instead of thinking about officials as these independent contractors who come in and manage a game, who, who just simply apply the rules and then leave, trying to figure out ways in which we can make them more partners in the game. So if we can find out about what positive experiences they've created for athletes, then maybe we can find better ways to make them partners in the game. And once you have a partnership, you're far less likely to yell at that partner, right? You know, if I was officiating one of your games, we have a rapport, you're probably not going to yell at me the same way as you would a stranger. And maybe we can still have that disagreement, but we can have a better dialogue around it. And so I think really getting to this idea of what the good experiences are is going to help inform or maybe make better choices for how we can involve uh, sport officials in the game and then hopefully change that culture of abuse to one where they see the official as a teacher and an arbiter, but also a partner in the sport. So do you think this is going to be dependent on the age group that the official is working with? Because I would imagine like it, it would be easier for them to kind of be those partners with we'll just say maybe 12 and below than, you know, middle school, high school in, in either college competition, or do you think it matters? I definitely see a stronger role in the game itself for younger kids. And I think about, you know, in my sport where I'm officiating hockey, where you can teach some basic fundamentals of the game. You can teach people how to line up properly for face-offs. You can teach them some of the basic mm -hmm. rules. And some of those things can happen organically as you officiate the game. But interestingly, I've also come across situations where, you know, I might say something to a player about a rule to help them avoid getting a penalty. And then the coach is yelling at me for telling his player how to play the game. <laughs> it's like, well, you, you would think you would want me to teach them some of these rules so they don't end up in the penalty box. Now, as you get to older ages, I think you would probably have a little bit of hesitation from parents and coaches if you're giving some of those tips to a 15-year-old competitive player where then you might be saying, oh, well, this referee is giving someone a competitive edge. So instead, maybe there's ways to make them partners outside of the actual game. Maybe it could be things where referees actually go to practices and teach some rules to, to players. And in that way, they're still involved as a partner within the game, but they're not necessarily having an influence on the competitive edge within a specific game. Have you seen some of this already start to develop where you're seeing kind of rest as partners. And I'll give you a quick anecdotal story. I've done youth sport officiating and it was through um, like church league basketball, the, the upward program with kids, which is really popular here in the States. And they've kind of got a cycle and a model where the refs are expected to kind of help with the coaches and help teach the players. It's non-competitive. Everybody plays the same amount of time. And it seems to work pretty well as far as issues with the parents and issues with the players and even issues with coaches because this is the standard that we do it. I mean, that's one side of it and that's one model. Are there other models that are, are starting to kind of go this route? Yeah. The one you mentioned is spot on and there's been a few like that more at the grassroots level. There's a study that was done at late two thousands anyway. And what they had the officials do was learn about how to teach sportsmanlike behaviors to a, a group of basketball players while they, while they officiated. 
Uh, and so they trained officials to do that and, you know, how to interact with the players in, in different ways, what kind of sportman, uh, sportsman-like values to, to key in on. And at the end of the season, they found that players who had those officials in their games indeed demonstrated better levels of sportsmanship. And so there hasn't been a whole lot in that area, uh, but the, the example you give and then that study there and what we're hoping to find with, with my research here is hopefully going to give us a better direction of how we can actually make officials partners within the game. You know, is it strictly about rules? Is it about strategies? Is it about just behaviors? Um, and so I think there's a lot of work to be done there, but what we have seen so far has been encouraging. And again, this is anecdotal, but you know, you're still refereeing youth hockey. Have you implemented any of this yourself just to kind of see, eh, let me see if this works. You talk about the one coach kind of getting on your back. Um, but I wonder if some of the other kids have kind of been like, Hey, you know, thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah. It's, it's something that I've started to do more and more as I get older. And I think part of that comes with just the confidence of knowing like, mm. Hey, I've, I've got the rules down. I have a pretty decent understanding of the game and now I can start to teach different things. Mainly what I've looked at uh, or what I've tried to do as an official is embrace this idea that I can maybe demonstrate to some of the athletes what good hockey behaviors look like. And I can also teach them how to stay on the right side of the rules. Uh, and so you might have little things where, you know, someone says something on the ice and you just kind of look at a player and say, okay, you know what? That crosses a line. I understand you're upset. I understand you're, you know, there's some trash talk that goes on within the game, but in this sport, you've taken it too far. Uh, so you might have little things like that. And then, like I mentioned before, like some of the rules that you might say, you know, you could, you can do this with your stick, but you can't do this, or you can do this with your hands, but you can't do this. I think those are important things as well. And I've started to incorporate more and more of that as I've gotten older. I would say for the most part, players and coaches are receptive to that because it mm -hmm. only makes their team better. Uh, but there are still those few instances where for some reason coaches do not want you to talk to their players whatsoever about those things and teach them the game. Well, you never know when a scout from the Maple Leafs is watching your old hockey game. <laughs> exactly. They're, they're, they're all over there at age 12 looking at those kids. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, the, you know, you said something, and this is going to be kind of completely off subject to a certain extent. But one thing we talk about this, and it's kind of nice to have a professional to talk about this with. Um, in one of my classes, we talk about kind of violence in sport and maybe not so much in the youth levels, but one of the things we talk about is hockey and should fighting be allowed in hockey. Um, I'm interested to kind of get your perspective because you played, I think, at a pretty high level there in Canada. You've officiated at a high level. Should fighting be allowed in the game? That is a, that is a great question. And I do like to point out when I have this debate with students that technically fighting's not allowed. That, I mean, there's a, there's a five-minute penalty that goes along with it. Yep. But there's certainly things that a league could do more of to make sure that fighting doesn't actually happen. So, I mean, in my history, I, yeah, I played hockey at a reasonable level. I got in a couple fights myself. I've refereed hockey long enough that I've probably witnessed, you know, three or 400 fights on the ice. And I think there's a place in the game for fighting. I think we're to the point that having players on your team who are strictly there to fight I think that's gone. I think having staged fights where simply, you know, we might look at each other before the game and say, hey, halfway through this game, you want to fight? Okay, sure. I think those are kind of archaic at this point. So the goons. We're, we're starting yeah. to get the goons, out. the enforcers, I think yeah. we're getting past that point. 
but I've absolutely been in hockey games where just it's got a certain amount of edge to it. Mm-hmm. And the fact that hockey players are moving faster than any other athletes in team sports, right? They're on skates. So they're going faster. Um, the fact that you have boards that keep you closed within the rink and the fact that you're carrying around hockey sticks, it can really elevate aggressive tendencies if you don't have some sort of outlet. And I've been in a lot of games where I'm looking for, you know, I'm, I'm honestly saying like, I really wish there was a fight right now. And sometimes when that fight happens, everyone just calms down and you play the game. So yeah, there's definitely the, the side of it where players can get hurt and we're, we're certainly uh, cognizant of head injuries in particular and concussions. But I think if you're talking about those one-off fights that aren't staged, they're not by goons, they, they're kind of a natural part of the game. I think those actually serve a purpose. And I think that always kind of brings up another thing with students because they would say, well, why should fighting be allowed in hockey and not football? And again, this is coming from an American's view who, I'll be honest, I don't follow hockey as closely as, you know, a lot of people in Canada, but I also kind of think, you know, hockey's really the only sport where you're, you know, holding instruments where you could kill somebody. And I would much rather have people kind of, you know, duke it out and, and get it out of their system. And like you said, you know, and I'm sure you talk about this in your sports psychology class like I do, you know, there's a certain level of aggression and anxiety, but we all kind of perform at that optimal level. But when it goes beyond that, there is a little bit of kind of an outlet that you need, just like you said, just to kind of bring it back to normal. It's done. It's over with. You got your penalty. Let's go play and move on. I think it was actually Dusty Baker who suggested that baseball players should fight like hockey players. And when I think about that, like baseball in a given season, you're going to have what? 20, 30, 40 bench clearing brawls. Mm -hmm. And, And yeah, there's not necessarily a whole lot of punches being thrown, but I think the opportunities for injury in a bench clearing brawl might actually be higher than a one-on-one fight that has a certain code. Because when you talk about the hockey fight, I mean, uh, usually punches aren't thrown once someone goes down to the ground. Mm-hmm. Usually yep. it's two people who actually consent to the fight. And, and usually it's where the referees are right there. And when you know someone has clearly lost the advantage, they break up the fight. In hockey, you typically don't see multiple fights at one time in the rare instance you do, but it's, it's not typical. And, and that's kind of where I flip it around sometimes to my, my students to say, okay, yeah, it's not in baseball, but would that actually be better than throwing a fastball at someone's head or throwing a fastball at someone's chest and accidentally hitting them in the head? Would it not be better just to have a quick little fist fight, get it out of the way, get everyone calm back down, and then we move on? It would be so bizarre and so unique to see that happen. But I don't think Dusty, again, I think it was Dusty Baker. I don't think he was crazy for suggesting that actually might help. No, and I I think you bring up a good point. You know, there is a culture and there is a code to to every sport. And and it's unique to the sport. And and you brought up a great point with hockey. You know, I think people try to make it a zero-sum game. No, you got to take it out because it's bad for kids to watch and they're going to want to fight. But I think if you're brought up in that culture and they're brought up in that sport, you kind of understand it. Like you said, once a fight over, it's over. They go their separate ways. It's one-on-one. You don't see players coming in. They're not using sticks or they're not using other equipment. It's just kind of part of the game. And I know we're kind of off topic a little bit. You know, when we're talking about officials or, or talking about just managing a game as an official, you need to be cognizant of kind of those unwritten rules or, or the culture that goes in the game as well instead of, you know, I know some of the issues that we're having here, at least in the state of Indiana, we're getting new officials coming in that are officiating sport that never really been a part of sport before. 
and maybe not don't understand some of those cues that go on. And this is where, when you think about those new officials coming in, and we often think about game management, and, and game management comes from experience, and game management comes from being involved in the sport, and game management comes from being mentored by older officials. The way you sport is going, where kids don't get an opportunity to kind of work through that because they're dropping out within the first year. I think it's something like 80% of officials drop out within three years of starting. You don't get those chances to build game management and understand how to actually call things and how to let things go in the right situations. Uh, and a, a lot of that comes back to this idea that we're not keeping officials in the sport long enough to develop those skills. And this is kind of where I want to switch gears a little bit just in the interest of time. But you talked about we've got dropout with officials. And then also, you know, when we're talking about kids, we've got dropout with kids. And, and about to that age of 12 or 13, about 70% of them are dropping out. And one of the things that, that I'm reading in research is number, one of the number one reasons is, is parents and a lot of the pressure and the stress that comes. So you've done a lot of research in, in kind of youth sport development. This is a very open, broad question, so it's unfair. But what can be done to kind of turn the tide because I think a lot of the problems that we're seeing with officials we're kind of seeing and pop up in youth sport as well with maybe overzealous parents or coaches or unrealistic expectations so on and so forth yeah I think the number one thing you could do is make youth sport aligned with what kids want I think that would make it a lot easier so the number one thing they want is to have fun and I think the way a lot of youth sports are structured, especially when you get into some of your competitive streams from like, let's say ages 10 to 16, a lot of those just aren't fun anymore. And I think of the example of, um, again, not to go back to hockey too much here, but you think of some hockey teams around my area where they'll drive two hours for a game. They have to be there an hour early. They have a two hour time slot. They have half an hour on the rink afterward, they drive two hours back. So all said and told, you're talking about maybe like a seven hour commitment. Mm -hmm. And in that seven hours of commitment, they get to play 13 or 15 minutes of hockey. They get the puck on their stick, maybe three minutes of that time. Mm -hmm. So seven hours for three minutes with the puck on your stick. You can't tell me that's more fun than staying close to home and playing street hockey with your friends where you can do it for three straight hours and, and not have to worry about all this extra time. So obviously that doesn't work in all situations, but I think one of the biggest things is to realize that new sport should be geared toward what kids want. They want fun. They still want competition. So I know a lot of leagues are getting rid of scoreboards and things like that, but that's not what kids want either. They want a scoreboard. They want competition. And so they want to, they don't want it to be something that the competition determines whether they're good or not. Mm. They don't want it to be something where their parents' affection is altered by the scoreboard, but they do want to know who won and lost. So I think a real simple way to get back to what youth sports should be is think about what do kids actually want. And again, looking at the research, the number one thing has been to have fun. And then, you know, we also say to be with my friends and get exercise. So if you're asking me, and again, we talked about this before um, we started recording the podcast here, and just to let those who are listening know, you know, you've done a lot of background in this and research. In my PhD studies, this is what I'm very passionate about in researching. I think the goal of youth sport is that it's to have fun, it's to give kids an appreciation for play, and it's to teach them those life skills that sport does a great job of teaching about teamwork, 
um, sacrifice, hard work, dedication, discipline, and things like that. Is that what youth sports should be? Or am I way off base? Early sports specialization and, and competition and so on and so forth. I, I've said it before, and you mentioned it again before we came on, that 99% of kids, more than 99% of kids, are never going to go pro. Mm -hmm. And to think that we are gearing a sports system toward less than 1% of, uh, of athletes does not make any sense. I can't imagine going into a school and finding a school say, you know what, we're going to gear our math class toward the top 1% of kids. And if you can't <laughs> keep up, you can't keep up. I mean, parents would have a conniption. They'd have a field day with that. And you're, you're right. So we have to think about the outcome for almost every athlete is going to be they're not going to make it pro. So instead, what kinds of things do we really want them to get out of that? I want... For, for my son, and I think this is the case for, for most kids in sport, I want him to be challenged. Absolutely. It, it doesn't have to be something where he's coddled and gets a participation trophy for just showing up and stuff like that. That's probably a whole different topic. But I want him to be challenged. I don't want him to learn skills. And I want him to enjoy the sport for life or find the sport that he does enjoy for life. I don't want him to quit because of a coach. I don't want him to quit because of a parent. I don't want him to be 45 years old and not know how to play sports because his sport experiences were so bad. So yeah, I really do think that what you say is accurate, that youth sports should be about lifelong participation, meeting friends, all that in their learning skills, challenging yourself. And then a lot of those values are going to transfer into everyday life. I don't know um, what the right word is here that I'm looking for. Cocky, I guess, to a certain extent, but I mean, we both have, have played sports at a, at a relatively decent level. We, we've both coached uh, in college. You, you've coached college golf, and, and you've been in hockey for a long time, and I've coached college basketball. So I know we're both pretty competitive people, and I, and I think there's kind of the gap there where, you know, people may kind of hear some of the things we're talking about and thinking, oh, well, everybody should get a participation trophy, and there's no winners or losers. And, and I don't think that's what we're saying. And I think maybe it hasn't been marketed correctly on, on what kind of practitioners are trying to get through to coaches and to parents that competition is okay and, and, and score is okay. But again, this is another broad question. Is there kind of a range of where we start to kind of change things? Like I would say maybe up until six years old, just let them play and let them go crazy because you're herding cats anyway. But when can we start to make it maybe a little bit more institutionalized where we start implementing some rules, start implementing some score, and then is there a cutoff to where, okay, our, our good players, they're going to go play varsity, and they're going to go on and maybe play college, and then some of our kind of middling players, we've got to find another opportunity for them. I think what I would look at is if you have a sport that has got some sort of basic structure – and that's going to be dependent on the sport when that age happens or when at what age that happens. But I think once you start to have some of that basic structure where you've got teams and you've got an objective at hand, I think keeping score is fine. I think as you get to maybe age 12 or 13, that might be when it's a good time to actually start including league standings, right? So you can have scores before that, but you don't really need to know that, yeah, we're 0 and 12, we're the worst in the league. Right? You probably know that you've lost a lot of games, but you don't need league standings that, that show that. Um, that might be a good time to start introducing some playoffs as well. Again, there, there's nothing wrong with kids learning about winning and losing at the right times. Um, and so I think you know, adding in playoffs as you get to maybe 10 or 12 years old is a pretty good idea. And 
you know, I really just come back to the idea that if you think about where the kids are at developmentally and think of what they want to get out of the sport and just try and build your sport structures around that, you're probably going to be doing really good by the kids. And I tend to agree. And again, it's, it's a, it's a broad question and it's different for every kid. It really is. But I, I, th- I do think it kind of goes back to, you know, what's the point in youth sport. So do you think we'll start to see the tide turning or, you know, what can be done to, to kind of continue to push this message out to coaches could be at like, uh, you know, the levels of a, of a U.S. soccer, USA basketball, or, you know, are there things being done kind of at a grassroots level to kind of turn the tide? I think there's a lot of good ideas being put out there. Just as one example, we talked about, you know, you put scores up and, and what happens if, you know, the team's losing 10 nothing. that's not fun for anyone. But, you know, some people have started putting this idea forward that what's wrong with having eight-year-old kids show up for a soccer game, and if it's 10 nothing, change the teams up a little bit. Like, we're so focused on this idea that this is your team and that's who you play with, and no matter what, you got to stick together. I mean, yeah, at age 15, you're not going to be switching teams on the fly, but at these younger ages, there's ideas like that that can kind of almost like uh, competitive engineering to try and make it more exciting and make it more fun for kids. So we have these ideas, but I think there's still a lot of reluctance, whether it's from coaches or parents or organizations to actually start to implement these changes on a wide scale basis. So I'd love to say that we're definitely going to see some changes in the next five years, but I just, I don't know that enough organizations are fully jumping in on doing this until we really get to the point where they start to see their registration numbers dropping significantly, I'm reluctant to think that they're actually going to make some significant changes. You know, unfortunately, just like in anything, money kind of talks. And and that extends to what I think with the, with the changes of uh, the culture around sport officiating, that we know that parents should not be screaming at kids, right? If I'm going to a hockey game and the referee is doing an absolutely brutal job, it's not my job to yell at a 13 year old kid, right? (laughs) In most cases, we would call that child abuse. If, again, I'll bring the school example in. If someone yelled at a kid like that in a math class, that teacher would be fired that day, if maybe the next day. But, you know, you would, yep. you would not see the kind of thing in a different environment. But we know all these things until we get to the point that teams actually have to cancel games because there's not enough officials. I'm not sure we'll see a whole lot of effective change. Well, thankfully, we, uh, we got people like you out there fighting a good fight and, and doing the research for us. As we wrap up here, um, where can people uh, find you on, on Twitter? And if they want to get involved with the study, are there still opportunities? If you want to look, uh, look me up on Twitter, it's at Prof Hancock Mun, M-U-N, at the end of that. Uh, I try and post uh, from time to time some interesting things about sports psychology, uh, which has been not so active these days, given that not a whole lot of sports happening. <laughs> and generally, I will post things on there about research studies that, uh, that I'm conducting. Uh, if anyone wants to get specifically involved in research, just shoot me an email. It's dhancock at mun.ca. Uh, and I'm certainly happy to, to direct you to different uh, studies that I've got going on in, in my lab. And if you visit the uh, Trine Center for Sports Studies, all, all our social media sites, um, we've got a link to the, to the study there if you want to get involved. Dr. Hancock, we appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Be sure to check out our social media pages on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter 
for our next guest in late June. This is the Center for Sports Studies podcast, broadcasting from the Trine Broadcasting Network. For more information about the Center for Sports Studies, please visit trine.edu. Also, be sure to like the Trine Center for Sports Studies on Facebook, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at TrineCSS. Thanks for listening to this presentation of the Trine Broadcasting Network, part of the Center for Sports Studies at Trine University. Learn more at trine.edu.